0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good morning. My name is uh, Father Ben. one of the priests here. And the lectionary has given us a few weeks in Job and Hebrews. So that's what we're starting today. And the Old Testament, New Testament reading are all going to be taken from Job and Hebrews. And we're continuing to work through Mark's gospel um, right now in the lectionary. And a lot (laughs) could be said, should be said, needs to be said about each of these passages, but... Today, I'm just going to try to integrate the impact of hearing all of them together uh, to proclaim some good news in our midst. Um, Okay? All right, all right, sounds good. Just made sure I had some agreement. Thank you, yeah, some agreement. Yeah, we're good to go. Here we go. Um, So any reading from Job always brings up the problem of evil, right, or the problem of suffering. Um, But we oftentimes get this book wrong. Um, When bad things happen in our world, in our lives, often our first move is to speculate on why this is happening, right? Often our first move is to try to parse God's reason for allowing things to happen like this, thinking that the mystery of this situation is somewhere inside of God's will. But the point of the book of Job is the exact opposite of this. (laughs) It's exactly the opposite of this. The point of the book of Job seems to be to teach us that the mystery of evil is not located in God's will. It's located in the mystery of a creation that is chaotic, that is war-torn, that is contested, and is unfathomably complex, where we don't know what goes on behind the scenes spiritually. We don't know all the effects that went into this situation happening. That's the mystery. The mystery is, creation is incredibly complex, not "God's will is incredibly complex." So the prologue that we read in Job today, it serves as this literary device. It's really interesting. It gets the reader it gives the reader perspective that the characters in the story lack. Job and his friends and his wife, like they have no idea what's happened. But we do. That's kind of how the, the literature works. We get to see the chance dialogue that occurs between Yahweh and Satan, who, unlike the other heavenly beings, seems to be operating under his own authority and not Yahweh's authority, traveling to and fro on the earth, kind of doing what he wants. Satan levels this charge against Yahweh and challenges Yahweh's integrity and wisdom in ruling the cosmos. And in the context of this narrative, it was a challenge that could only be met by a test. God couldn't just say, quiet, Satan. That's not true. He had to test. Job. And again, this is inside the context of the narrative. It's not a good idea to ask greater questions of Job than Job is answering. So the book of Job just answers questions from inside the book of Job. It doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't give us answers about how uh, heaven works and how the heavenly beings function, right? This is just a literary device for Job. And so Satan, in this literary, uh, in this uh, uh, book, in the story, Satan is allowed to test the most righteous man on earth and Job begins his suffering. So the point is that we see this conversation, but the characters in the story don't have any knowledge about it. And so in the story, they speculate about Job's suffering. Maybe you sinned. Maybe God's, you know, they speculate about what's the reason that, God, that this has happened to you. Um, and, and they try to figure out the answer for Job's suffering that's going to satisfy their curiosity about why such bad things are happening to such a good person. Maybe he's not so good. All of these little speculations that they have about Job. At the end of Job, you realize they were pointless speculations. That's not where the mystery lies. So our scriptures today and the book of Job in in general shows us that God's answer, answer to our suffering, this is our good news for today, God's answer to our suffering is not to give us a theoretical framework that satisfies us intellectually. God's answer to our suffering is to enter into it In the body of Jesus, tasting death for everyone, transforming our suffering then into a place of embodied communion with the God who suffers and solidarity with all who suffer. This is what our Hebrews reading is getting at. Jesus being the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, was made like us. A little lower than the angels. Now crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is God entering into our suffering. In Jesus God becomes Job. And suffers in solidarity with us. And in so doing transforms our suffering. Into resurrection. Into life. And even more, in bringing many children to glory, it says, God made the pioneer of our salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through his sufferings. So now the one who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are being sanctified, that's us, all have one Father. So Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. So we're all part of this big family now, connected to God as Father, Jesus as brother, each of us, sisters and brothers. Because of what Jesus has done, our suffering can now be a place of communion. And even joyful solidarity with God and with each other and with all who suffer. God's answer to our suffering is not to give us a theoretical framework that satisfies us intellectually. God's answer to our suffering is to enter into it in the body of Jesus, tasting death for everyone and transforming our suffering into a place of communion, embodied communion with the God who suffers and solidarity, deep solidarity with all who suffer. Our gospel passage then serves to give us two examples of Jesus doing this. He enters into our suffering as the living embodiment of God's presence in our midst. He enters into the suffering of women living in a fear of uh, being divorced by their husbands. He challenges the Pharisees' desire to keep this conversation in the realm of abstractions and rules. They want to justify their oppression by filing the correct paperwork. That's what's going on here. If we file the correct paperwork, we can get rid of women if we want, right? Jesus is speaking in this passage. There's a lot we could say about this passage. We don't have time. So if you have questions about it, please do talk to me. I actually would love to talk to you about it if you have questions here. But Jesus in this passage is speaking to men who use the threat of divorce as a means of manipulation, a mechanism for men to lord their power over women. That's what's going on here. Jesus is not creating a new rule about divorce. He's entering into a specific question asked by a specific group of people for a specific reason and gives a timely word in this context to protect the powerless, to confront and correct the ways that they had misheard and misused God's word and turned it into an instrument of oppression. He enters into the suffering of women in this passage. And then he enters into the suffering of children who were being ignored and rejected, and shooed away, and treated as unimportant. Today we have this picture of kids as like precious little, you know, like we love our kids, right? In that day, kids were not treated like that. Kids were not important. They were not treated as anything worth paying any attention to, and he steps into their powerlessness and their suffering, and he takes them in his arms, and he blesses them, and he points to them and says, you know, you know who you guys need to be more like? These kids. Do you see how Jesus does this? He does this in these two embodied ways in the Gospels, which is a picture of what he does on the cross and what he does for us. He enters into our suffering. In both cases and throughout his ministry, Jesus doesn't offer an abstract answer to the problem of evil. Instead, Jesus, again, becomes Job, suffering unjustly at the hands of the powers in order to taste death for everyone becoming a living embodiment of of God's healing love and power and presence in the world. So God's answer to our suffering, friends, once again, is not to give us a theoretical framework that satisfies us intellectually. God's answer to our suffering is to enter into it in the body of Jesus, tasting death for everyone, and therefore transforming our suffering. Transforming our suffering into a place of embodied communion with the God who suffers, And deep solidarity with everyone who suffers. We're connected, brothers and sisters, to all who suffer. And there's joy in this, friends, actually. There's joy in this solidarity. Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before Him. The joy of what? The joy of communion. The joy of bringing many children to glory. So how do we respond to this good news? No sane person seeks out suffering. So don't do that. That would prove you're insane. Yeah. If you're just a glutton for punishment, maybe you just got some kairoses you gotta work through. We'll we'll figure that out. Join a DNA group. Um, So no sane person seeks out suffering, but we do have a lot of ways of avoiding suffering. Right? We do have a lot of ways of distracting ourselves from the suffering that comes to us. Affluence makes it easy to insulate ourselves from suffering, both our own and the suffering of others. If we have enough money, there's always something to buy that we can distract, that we can use to distract us from our sadness, for example, or insulate ourselves against the cries of the poor, or live somewhere where we don't have to listen to them. Our worship songs can also serve as spiritual barbiturates, numbing our awareness of suffering. Biblical scholar Michael J. Rhodes pointed out recently that the top 25 worship songs sung in churches right now have almost no resemblance to the Psalms. Super interesting Twitter thread that he wrote. He wrote an article, too, for Christianity Today about this. There's hardly any mention of justice in these top 25 songs. There is no references to the poor, the oppressed, or the enemies in the top 25 songs. But the Psalms, by contrast, are positively dripping with justice, with cries for justice, crying out to God to save and to heal and to help. So part of how we can stop avoiding our own suffering is by allowing the Psalms to shape our speech to God. Trading out sloppy wet kisses for break the arm of the wicked man. Joel does a great job with this. Um, and I just want to say more, Joel. More justice songs. Let's do it. All right. Anyway. Do you, guys, you guys know that... Um, you guys can sense that, yeah? Sometimes we can use our spirituality as an insulation against... Suffering that we actually need to touch if we're going to be in communion with God. So, what suffering are you aware of today, friends? It could be your own suffering, it could be someone else's that you need to allow yourself to feel. What are you doing to avoid this awareness? Are you distracting yourself with entertainment? Are you intellectualizing the problem? Are you blaming the victim? As I said before, there's joy in this process of entering into suffering. It's not being a glutton for punishment. But as we allow ourselves to touch our own suffering and touch the suffering of others, we find God there. It's where God's living. And we find ourselves in communion, not just with God, but with each other. And we find ourselves in communion with all who suffer. This is how God is saving us. The deep and abiding joy of communion and solidarity, friends, is so much greater than the vague pleasantness of a distracted life. So now as we move into prayer and song and Eucharist together, let's allow ourselves to feel whatever suffering is present to us. We'll do it right here, right now. And allowing us to experience, allowing that experience to usher us into communion, with the God who suffers, and into solidarity with all who suffer, trusting that Jesus Christ, our Savior, has tasted death for everyone and joyfully joined himself to us and made us part of one family. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.